Hi, this is uh, not Sean Connery, because uh, if it were, I would be extremely old. Uh, but uh, if you'd like to listen to podcasts about your favorite movies that you have never seen yet, uh, join us for the 4.30 movie, and perhaps we'll have another Bond week. Hi, this is Darren Docterman, one half of the Inglorious Trexperts, and I just want to tell you to get ready for season two. Yes, I know, you just finished listening to season one, but it's only a week later, and here we are. It's season two already. So join us, because we have a lot of fun with Star Trek, and hopefully you will too. Hey, if you're a Star Wars fan, check out the new Star Wars podcast, The Rebel and the Rogue, every Tuesday on the Electric Surge Network, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome back to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Uh, I am your host, Josh Miller, and with me as always is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Very excited about our topic and guest today. This will be part one, or shall we say night one, of a two-part episode with Mr. David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick. Four names. That lets you know you're I know, very it's a important. Lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're going to be talking about the two-part, I guess you would call it a mini-series, for Return of the Thing, which was a sequel to John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, and we're going to talk about a bunch of other stuff, too. Uh, how are you doing, sir? Cool. Glad to be here. <laughs> it's, it's fun to revisit this. I'm glad you feel that way. Some people find it painful (laughs) (laughs) although they usually say by the end of the episode that it was cathartic if nothing else so um but let's just kind of go all the way back and talk about how you first got started where are you from you're from ohio is that what you said before yeah i'm uh, from mansfield ohio yeah which it's um only claim to fame uh is the prison where they shot shawshank redemption which is how i roundabout way of how i got here because i met frank darabont on the set of that movie. That's cool. I worked wow. at the mall where they shot Mall Rats in oh, Eden cool. Prairie, Minnesota. <laughs> That's maybe not quite as cool as Shawshank. <laughs> um, but, oh, and actually I'm just realizing you have a Frank Darabont connection too, but let's not jump yeah. ahead. What? Yeah. So okay. how do you how do you get out of Mansfield? Did... Well, now we're back to Frank Darabont. Okay. Because uh, I, I uh, worked in the production office on Shawshank Redemption. I was a local hire. I was from Mansfield. I just graduated from film school. Um, and had no idea what I was going to do. And then they came to my old hometown to shoot that movie. Um, and I just did every little odd job around. I was like answering phones, in the production office and I was, I was, uh, in editorial, like in the old, like, I mean, that was on a steam back, you know, I was, yeah. I was, I was, I was coding daily. Were you a PA? Was that the yeah. position? Yeah. I mean, they didn't really have a title for me. They just yeah. threw me wherever they <laughs> needed better, me. better though then because you can bounce around. Well, yeah. I mean, I wound up, uh, uh, as being the dailies projectionist. Like they, oh, we, that was cool. before they were distributing them on, that was even before they were distributing them on VHS. Yeah. <laughs> that you had mm-hmm. to come and actually come to a room and watch them on a screen. Uh, I was the projectionist there. So I would see like Roger Deakins and Frank would come in and watch the footage from the day before. And that's how I got to meet Frank. Well, and I mean, stepping back before that, I always think it's interesting. When you said you had no idea what you were going to do, right. what, what was your focus in film school? I mean, well, 
my focus in film, I'd gone to film school to uh, learn how to, to, I, to be a director and then realized that that was a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> Why do you say I, that? <laughs> I, was, I was a bad director. I, was, <laughs> I, uh, I would uh, look at my finished film and be like, well, the script was so good. Why is this so bad? And then I go, oh, because this is me. <laughs> this is what I need. I needed to stop the process at this yeah. point when the script was good and give it to someone who knew what they were doing. Well, you know, a lot of people never realize that. So I like to think <laughs> your success as a writer uh, was helped by that. But so then, so how do you go from peeing on Shawshank then to like moving out to L.A.? Well, I mean, short version of the story. Um, it's just because I, from that show, I met a bunch of people, you know, I made friends with a bunch of people there. I found some, you know, floors that I could sleep on when I came out to LA. So, I mean, like a few months after the show wrapped, you know, I figured I, I, I was living at, because it was my old hometown, I was living at my parents' house. I was just banking everything I made yeah. on the movie. <laughs> um, and then went out to LA to just give myself, you know, until that money ran out to, to find something and like. I don't know, six months in, um, Frank was looking for a new assistant and he remembered me. Had, he had heard through the grapevine of these other people that I knew that I was in town and called me up and I was his assistant then for like five years. Right on. Yeah, that was so, nice. Very lucky chain of events. And I mean, again, that's the short version. Yeah. Like the, the, yeah. The, the number of things that came together for that to happen were yeah, it's, it's I can imagine. bizarre. Yeah. Um, and not to get sidetracked, but I, I think it is interesting, Shawshank now being this, is it still number one rated movie on IMDb? IMDb I know it was for there. a long time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's floating or always floating at the top. But what was even the sense just at the time working on this? I mean, Frank Darabont, I mean, I guess unless you really followed writing careers, it's like he wasn't really much of a name at that point. He'd worked I mean, on The Blob his... and Nightmare on Elm Street 3. And that was his first movie. Yeah. That was the first movie he'd ever directed. So, I mean, it was it was, there wasn't, you know, the, the sort of anticipation for, for that movie. And mm -hmm. like you say, his, his reputation was for horror films, mm -hmm. you know, so here's this, you know, prison drama. <laughs> what, you know, uh, but I mean, the script was really good right from the start. You reread the script and we're just like sucked into it. Um, so you just, you know, everybody sort of felt like they were doing something special. I don't think anyone realized. I guess that's that what I was really asking. But yeah. if you did feel like something, yeah, interesting well, was really happening. Yeah, here. I mean, you can't really have that sense. But you, you, you kind of would look at the dailies and you would be like, "This is good," <laughs> you yeah. know, every day. You know, like, huh, this is coming together. Yeah. Plus, everything at that time, Stephen King was strictly horror, so it was interesting that it was like a non-horror Stephen King project coming out. Right. Which you is know. funny because that was different seasons because that was the same book with Stand By Me mm -hmm. where that was basically him being like, because he got all this crap for writing horror from critics and he's like, here, look, I can write stuff that isn't horror and then it turns into these like classic movies. Right. It's a real, real baller yeah. move on King's part. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, so then how, when does the like actual writing kind of come in? Because you're, so you're his assistant on his like follow-up movies, Green Mile and stuff, I can assume. Yeah, well, I mean, it was actually just Green Mile because what, uh, for most of those five years, he was just writing. He was looking for his next directing thing. Was this during and, the era where he was working on, because he did like an Indiana Jones yeah. script? That or was, was that a, later? That was, that was later. That later. was after okay. Green Mile. Um, but he was like a lot of script doctor stuff. And like I was in my 20s and you know, wanting to be on movie sets and meet movie stars and see movies getting made. And it was kind of a stupid thing to be frustrated about because what I wanted to do was write. And I was like, 
watching him write every day. I like got like really this <laughs> education on the life, not just like the craft, but like the life of being a screenwriter and, and being freelance and, and sort of the ups and downs of that sort of career. Uh, so it was a great sort of second film school. And then like from the first day I came in, he was always, he had told me, um, you know, that he knew I had ambitions to be a writer, didn't expect me to be around forever. And that like, you know, part of the perk of this job was he would just read whatever I had. And so every time I'd write something, I'd have it handed to him and he would sort of critique it and hand it back to me. And, and I did that for five years. Oh, you wow. know? Um, and like the first time he was like, oh, this one's good. I like got rid of everything else. <laughs> yeah. and I was like, okay, now we're starting over and this is, you know, our baseline. Um, and uh, so that's, you know, he sort of mentored me in that way. And then ultimately, um, when I wound up leaving, he sort of godfathered me to my first job. You know, I pitched him an idea. A friend of mine and I had written a treatment, and he, like, took it to where he had his production deal and was like, I want him to write this, and if he screws it up, I'll fix it. And mm-hmm. sort of gave me my first shot at writing professionally, which ultimately got me. I mean, it did, nothing happened with that, but ultimately got me an agent and and Yeah, I was going to ask what that script was. It, it was... Um, uh, an adaptation of the old pulp uh, novels, uh, Doc Savage. Oh, Man that of was Bronze. one of the things we wanted to yeah. ask you yeah. about because that's that is now a classic, uh, constantly almost made. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right. At, th- at that point, had anyone else been trying to make it, or Mm-mm. did it, you kind of kicked off this now unending? <laughs> right. Now it's Shane Black's Saga. battle to be having. <laughs> right. Um, and was that was that Schwarzenegger involved with that one? It was. Yeah. No, he was. He was. All, he wanted that to be his, we, we had a couple of meetings with him he he was like adamant that, that was going to be his next movie after uh, the Terminator movie he was doing and then he went and became the governor and that was the <laughs> end of that it's an interesting reason for your movie to <sighs> so, get shut down right. it would have been because that was during like collateral damage and all that stuff mm-hmm. it would have been really cool for him to play Doc Savage yeah, yeah. maybe set up yeah, for because I, I think you know. it's always interesting with IP like Doc Savage because there was this character that was incredibly popular at one oh, yeah. point in time and now mostly just the name people have maybe heard maybe, of. Maybe, yeah. Maybe set up who Doc Savage was as a character just for the audience. Well, I mean, Doc Savage was, uh, I mean, he was the great grandfather of so many characters that we have today. He was, mm-hmm. he was of, of Indiana Jones and James Bond and Superman. Um, and it's weird to think of Superman, but I mean... Uh, because he didn't have superpowers, but all the, um, if you look at, like, go to the old pulps, like the original pulps and the advertisement for him, I mean, he was, uh, he was um, uh, Clark Savage. We have Clark Kent. Kent. Yeah, yeah. He was the man of bronze. Man of steel. Instead of the man of yeah. steel. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I actually found uh, an old advertisement for it, which was a picture of Doc Savage punching this, you know, criminal and underneath it it said doc savage super hyphen man <laughs> uh so i mean there, there were a lot of you know there were lots there that the, the, the comics cribbed from and um he just you know it was this great sort of early adventure character that i mean was one of the most popular pulp heroes and then just sort of as the pulps faded away his sort of familiarity passed away too and what was your take for the movie was yours going to be set in his original time period, or oh, did you yeah. updated it? Yeah, no, we were doing. Uh, we were definitely setting it in that time period, um, but we had sort of. I guess if we had a take on it, it was it was sort of like an 
alternate 1930s in that like the the technolo- technology was a little bit heightened um i guess if you had a uh, if you're going to compare it to something, it might have been something like Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. Or is even going to say you know, the, the animated Batman series yeah. where it was kind of like the past, but they still had like present technology. It was a past we had a, a robot. Yeah. You know, okay. it, but <laughs> yeah. it was that sort of thing. Um, uh, because, you know, Doc Savage had this sort of, for the 1930s when they were being written, had a sort of sci-fi bent. It's just that, you know, this his sci-fi bent was a little bit too old-fashioned for modern day like there was one a book i remember reading where his like he had this tricked out james bond kind of car with all these gadgets and one of the gadgets on his car was an automatic transmission <laughs> uh, so we we, to, we wanted to capture that feel yeah. of like you're on the cutting edge of technology but we couldn't really do that with you know yeah that sort of technology we, we wanted to be a little bit beyond what we had combined with the 1930s technology so it's funny because he like grew up on an island, right? Or or was yeah. that well, his father had sort of like had groomed him to be the world's most perfect man or something, yeah. right? That's what and I was gonna so... say. It's funny that it was Schwarzenegger because it always kind of reminded me of his setup from Twins, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but was that uh, Dar- was Darabont going to direct that one? No, uh, his buddy Chuck Russell was going to direct that because oh, uh, right Chuck had directed. Um, was this uh, out Arnold in an Eraser. Oh right, um, and another one that I'm forgetting the the, the name of. Uh, the, there's a Devil Woman. Uh, oh, End, oh of End of Days. End of Days. Yes, those Chuck are two, those both are of two those. good movies. Um, I love God. I love sequences in Eraser. Like there's so I, I love that airplane sequence so much in that movie. <laughs> and <laughs> it's I, a fun I, movie. And, and friends of mine just recently showed me like Joe Bigos and Josh Ether sat me down and showed me End of Days again recently, and I. I didn't really get it when it first came out, but rewatching it now, I, I really like that film. I Those was, type of movies always yeah. become more fun when they're old. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, but uh, he had, oh, that's a shame because he had worked on two pretty cool Schwarzenegger movies. It would have been nice for him to work with him again on that. Yeah. No, it would have been cool. But, but yeah, Frank was producing that. Um, Chuck was going to be directing. Arnold was starring in it. And then nothing happened. So mm. I guess that's it, a... So then what came in the wake of that? That was at least like a high profile. It was a Schwarzenegger movie you were working on. So I imagine it wasn't all for nothing on your end, career-wise. Almost. 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 It was pretty close. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But uh, I I, I mean, I got, I mean, the script existed in the world. People read the script. Um, I wound up getting an agent through a series of agents. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, But I did wind up, but I mean, I'd worked. So like people... You know, took me at least this much seriously. I'm holding my fingers very small distance apart. <laughs> if you're listening, um, and uh, so that I mean, eventually I wound up getting an agent who I could say, "Hey, look, I've worked before." You know, um, and and so we got some baby steps going. But I mean, I, I went back to day job after yeah. you know, after that because <laughs> it just you know nothing nothing was happening, and then. How far, like, what was kind of the path leading up to Return of the Thing then between those? I only worked one other time uh, in, in between. Um, I did, it was like a, it, it was actually a project uh, that Stan Lee had developed based on an original idea of his for, and, and that, that was for TBS Originals, which ceased to exist while I was writing the script. <laughs> um, That's encouraging. Yeah. So, um, and then uh, it was just my agent you know, who I at that point had, um, 
who said that Sci-Fi Channel was looking to do something with the thing, and would I be interested? So the answer to that was yes, uh, and that's how that got started. And did, was that you had to kind of go in and pitch your take on it? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, because they were. I mean, it was like the genesis of it was basically they had the IP, they wanted to do something with it, and they were just sort of like blue skying. Like it wasn't even a sequel at that point. Um, they were they were they were just like let's take the IP and let's make another thing story and maybe it's there was no connection to the John Carpenter movie they were gonna sort of reinvent the wheel and go back and create a new thing and um you know I think at one point it was like it could turn into anything so like the chair you were sitting on could be the thing or whatever <laughs> um, and I just I, when I heard that I was just that. I just had to approach it like as a fan, which was like, that's not what I want to see. Yeah. I want to see what happened. You know, <laughs> I want to see a sequel. Like it's the uh, thing. It's not <laughs> Otho from Deep Space Nine. <laughs> right. um, well, so this was like a, the script we have of, of this is dated 2005. So was this 2005 well, or end of 2004? That's yeah, in that area. Because I mean, it, it was it was a big project. It was, I mean, it was basically two features yeah um so it was a and they're huge <laughs> they're, they're big and they're dense yeah well, i was gonna i'm trying to remember what sci-fi was like at the time had they done the dune miniseries yet mm -mm, i don't think so maybe i don't remember I'm what year those were i'm just trying to think i'm trying to place how ambitious this was for them to be doing right yeah i mean it was I, I'm trying to think what was going on at that time because it, it was definitely it, it might have been around that time of Dune because it was this format of you got two nights you know mm -hmm. you have two movies and it's it's and and I believe they'd done that format before, um, and then the idea too was you know hopefully this was you know you you make it you knock on wood maybe this is the backdoor pilot for a series yeah like Battlestar Galactica exactly that was sort of the the ambition of it. Yeah, they already did the Dune TV series by that point. Okay. Yeah. And so that, that at least makes, I, I get how they were like, oh, we just did this big thing and it succeeded. Right. Let's do yeah. an even bigger thing. Because that was my biggest surprise reading it <laughs> was just knowing what, what kind of money they generally had to spend. I'm like, this is huge. <laughs> right. I mean, in a good way, like it would have been fun, but uh, it just surprised me. Um, well, yeah. So like, let's start getting into, so they're, there was going to be two nights. Right. Do you know how close it did? Would they have aired two nights in a row or like a week apart? Or I guess you don't yeah. even really know. Yeah, I know. I don't I, I, I don't remember them discussing it. And it was really like we never got far enough along to like figure that out, what mm -hmm. it would be. Um, just that we, you know, we just we had the two nights. And that was it. Mm. I'm also trying to kind of place in my head where I guess the DVD had come out where the th where the thing was in its now the thing is just considered this classic right. mm -hmm. horror movie. I mean, almost to the point where it's almost classic beyond just being a horror movie. Right, and it's that kind of sort of movie where it's like, oh, people in the past were idiots because this movie's so great. <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, do you have any sense of where that kind of its arc was at the time? I mean, clearly they had the rights and wanted to do something with it. I mean, but... only as uh, I don't know in the sort of general zeitgeist, but just like as a fanboy. I was, I mean, that was what had sort of, I, this is a bad word because, I mean, it, it alarmed me about the, t the direction they were going as a fan, which was like, you know, it, it was sort of esteemed enough, at least in my eyes, to be like, you're not going to 
do that again. You know, you're not going to go back to square one and reinvent this creature and beat what Rob Bottin did. Yeah. Like, that's mm-hmm. not going to happen. You, they, they captured lightning in a bottle, uh, and it's one of the iconic monsters. Uh, you know, anything you do is going to be sort of a pale second to that. Mm-hmm. Why not just embrace it and and go for it and revisit that world and play in that sandbox? Yeah, and I think I'm not going to get too far ahead, but I think that's what you did brilliantly in the script because at the time, like there was a PlayStation game that was a sequel to the thing, right? And it took place in Antarctica, like the comic books, and so it, that's why when I was reading your script, I was so blown away. I was because. You know, what you did is you made aliens to alien. And that's what pains me when I read it is like this was this could have catapulted this franchise and you really world built perfectly on it. You know, and it it benefited from the fact that it is two movies. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like you were you were able to have it both ways because you were able to like recycle a lot of the best bits. But because you had a whole other movie, like you had to move (laughs) past and then do Mm -hmm. more stuff. Um, so I think fans would have been pleased in that way. I was mm-hmm. going to add, just popped into my head, I kind of forgot about this. Around the same period of time, the first legit meeting I ever had moving out here was with David Foster, who produced oh, no the kidding. thing. And I was so excited to talk to him about it, and I brought it up, and he basically was just like, blah, it almost ruined my career. <laughs> and then all he wanted to talk about was an idea he had for Short Circuit 3, where Johnny Five goes to college, I think maybe in Hawaii? Oh, man, we got an interview about that. <laughs> I, uh, we wound up working with David Foster on this. Yeah, I was going to ask, yeah, was he involved? He was because just, I mean, when we went back to sort of that movie, they had to had to bring him involved, bring him into it. And so, yeah, he was. Uh, was he still, was he as crusty about it with you guys as he? Well, I mean, he's. He's he's great, but he's always crusty, right? Yes. Like he's, <laughs> you know, he and, and he uh, he was just, uh, he was really fun voice to have in the room to have somebody who was there you know mm-hmm. and, and could really and like produce some good movies yeah McCabe and mrs miller just to name one mm-hmm. um right, let's let's start getting into it then so what was kind of the early stages of when you were really mapping it out uh like what were you kind of trying to do with it it's funny reading the right. script i'm also simultaneously reading for the first time stephen king's the stand mm-hmm. um so i'm definitely get kind of flavor because i like that it's a disaster movie it's the right. classic like we have all mm-hmm. these different characters shit's going wrong we're bringing them all together uh and also made me realize i miss miniseries oh, now right. we have limited series <laughs> and whatnot but like the tv yeah. event miniseries which especially stephen king TV miniseries were the 90s was all about Stephen King TV miniseries um but yeah it's like what what were you kind of trying setting out to do with this I mean well I mean the two things which is one was you know there's the there's a scene in the original movie where Wilford Brimley is calculating how long it will take to assimilate the entire planet if the this thing gets off the 27,000 hours, right? right? Yeah. And and so it seemed very clear that like if you were going to do something with it, it had to get out. It couldn't be you couldn't recycle the same story. Mm-hmm. You had to get you had the risk had to be that, you know, it, it it's it's out in the world and and you have to deal with it. Um so that was that was a, a starting point. Um but then also, 
you know, I think you're touching on how we had the two nights. You also still wanted to trade in a lot of that same iconography and the paranoia and, and, and the suspense of it, which, you know, once it's out in the world, it gets a little bit crazy. You know, it's, it's a little bit more shooting things and running around in the dark and, and dropping bombs and things. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think probably like the next thing a- after that sort of thought um, was just, you know, for me, like, uh, good horror, my favorite horror, um, it's kind of a product of its time. Uh, and you sort of, you look at the things that were going on and like how, you know, Cronenberg's The Fly is about AIDS. And, and you know, I, I tried to look, just look back at when the original movie was made and it was what was struck me was you know the the you know, 1980s and the cold war um that sort of cold war paranoia is that sort of the sort of our touchstone for what was fueling that story back then um and then so i tried to apply it to where we were then which was early 2000s and it was all war on terror and the paranoia of like can you you know are there terrorists everywhere you know um so that was you know and and the idea of you know we you know you had the again this was early enough 2000s there was still sort of like what's left over from old soviet union lying around that you know terrorists could get their hands on so it seemed like the way into it was some sort of terror story some sort of you know that you also had you know concerns about um uh, plagues and virus and 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 um, you know uh, that sort of threat that people were sort of worried about. So I, I tried to like couch it in those terms of, of bringing you know a terrorist is it has 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 gotten this vial of something that he doesn't know exactly what it is. He just knows that it's bad, mm-hmm. and it turns out to be the thing. And that sort of was then the launching point for you know turning it into sort of a a, a weird sort of war on terror story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's just kind of walk through night one and what happens, because um, you you begin with the Soviet. Well, now they're the Russians, right? Being with well, the Russians in Antarctica. Well, actually, you start with the ending of part one. Sorry to cut you oh, off. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we Which... see Childs and McCready sitting there uh, when we just sit here. Or what? What is the line? Um, <laughs> wait here and see what happens. Wait a while. Yeah. Wait a while. Yeah. Um, and the Russians find them. I also like you answer the question everyone's wondered from the end of the thing is which one, if either of them is the thing, and it turns out neither of them were the thing. Right. And not only uh, that, they're both dead because yeah, they've they been froze to death. <laughs> froze to death out there. And bo- my favorite thing is uh, was that Kurt Russell's character has a gun pointing at Keith David, and Keith David has a blowtorch pointing at him when they froze to death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I just, oh, man, reading the opening immediately, I was like, all right, I, I love this already. <laughs> I'm in with that. with that Because just because I'm so used to the PlayStation game and the comics, it was just like, wow, this is kind of, I, I'm digging how we're getting into this right now. And I will say, often when you answer that unanswered question all these years later sometimes I'm just like I didn't need to know but for mm-hmm. whatever reason reading this I was like yeah that makes me happy well that's because yeah. <laughs> I mean I you know, looking at it that was that's one of the, one of the things that like even uh, they just felt like there was no 100% satisfactory 
answer for that because what's so beautiful about the end of that movie is you don't know, yeah. but you can't proceed until you answer this question. You know, And I don't want either of them to be the thing. Mm-hmm. I also don't want them to be dead, but they kind of have to, have be, to be, and you, know, li- you have to go forward. Of the options, though, I like that it was neither of them. To me, oh, that's yeah. the most... It, it fits with the tone of the first movie right. that they just sat there and froze to death. <laughs> Pointing guns to each other. Um, yes. And in this, it's like they go back and they find the spacecraft again and they go in there. Right. Um, and again, pulling elements from the first movie, which is funny because certain aspects of this we end up seeing in like Prometheus mm. when really Scott made that. Uh, just as far as the idea, and I guess that was in the original Alien, but where there's aliens on top of aliens. Like there was like <laughs> right. the aliens whose spaceship that was, and they had found the shape, the thing, right. and that had screwed up their ship and made it crash in Antarctica. Um, and our one kind of real relevant character we meet here is Dr. Lukanov, I think right. is how you yes. would say right. it, who is a Russian scientist. And then we like jump forward in time to where a guy named Vitsenko has escaped from Russia on a plane. And there's this pretty cool sequence as far as like, I'm like, this is just good TV, where they realize they have to notify America. So then we see the American government scrambling to be like, all right, we got this plane flying over and Russia tells us that it's some sort of weaponized smallpox. Right. To kind of just be like, we, we need them to take care of it, but we don't want them to tell them the truth. So there's like, America's trying to mobilize in time to stop this plane from landing. Um, I'm trying to, do they end up shooting it down? It winds up crashing. Crashing, because the guy's yeah. having a heart attack. Vitsenko. Well, they think he's having a yeah. heart attack. Mm-hmm. He's actually thinging out, thinging out in front of everybody. But we cut away and we don't see it. Right. Well, that was what was, it, it was kind of, we got to have some fun with our knowledge of the previous movie yeah. because mm-hmm. they drag him out and they're, they're he's like having the heart attack and they're like, quick, get the You've paddles the and you get the paddles out and you just cut like, to the uh-oh. cockpit and you hear screaming in the background because you know what happened. You're like, that chest is going to rip open and bite <laughs> that person's hands off. No, I, I love this sequence. Too. It's like, like screw snakes on the plane. You got a thing on the plane in, this, <laughs> in the opening and it's so good. Yeah. And it is great because just again, the 27,000 27, hours and just like our <laughs> knowledge of how dangerous this really is. So when the plane crashes, already you're kind of like, well, now we're screwed. Right. Yeah. Um, we also meet some other relevant characters. There's Pritchard, who's kind of, I would say he's the like Paul Reiser middle management <laughs> jerk right. of this movie. Paul Reiser from Aliens, I mean. Yeah. Um, Paul Reiser himself, I'm sure, is a very nice person. <laughs> yeah. um, Dr. Anne Blackburn, who's like a sympathetic, uh, I think she studies, I'm trying to remember exactly, scientist. Yeah, she's, she's the CDC. She's, yeah. She's the, she's the one the, the Americans call when they find out that they've got weaponized smallpox coming their way. Um, and I thought this was interesting, speaking of Shane Black, and uh, Doc Savage, you have it crash in Christmas, New Mexico. So there's kind of this weird <laughs> Christmas motif that's just happening throughout the movie. Uh, and we also meet my favorite character in the movie, which is Frank Little Bear, uh, who's right. a Native American who lives in New Mexico. And he's the one who spots like a coyote comes sniffing the crash. And then we see like tendrils grab it and pull it in. And then the coyote goes like walking back out, which again, from the first movie, we all know what this means. And he witnesses this. So really for the both movies, everyone else is like busying themselves with the stuff. And he's just on this mission to hunt down the specific coyote, right. which he views as like, 
it's interesting because he views it as like a skinwalker, which on the one hand is wrong, but it's also right. Like he right. gets it on a level other people are not initially. Um, and again, in kind of our disaster movie fashion, we're meeting a lot of the people like the sheriff. There's a uh, mom and her son, Michael, uh, in this town. I don't want to get into weeds on all the characters. Well, yeah, there's favorite, a lot of them. My favorite character is a character named Gates. Oh, Hollis mm. Gates. <laughs> because it's like literally, cause like, I, I was wondering if it was a tribute to John Carpenter because it's yes. like you took this character out of Assault on Precinct 13 and yes. you threw him in the thing. And from and I was like, I love this character. <laughs> that, was, was, that was 100% what we were doing. Like, yeah. like, like, like at a certain point. Um, I should say he's a. We meet really, him and he yeah. is a, a prisoner being transported. So he's like handcuffed in the back mm-hmm. of like a squad car or a marshal's right. yeah. vehicle. Yeah, he's being transferred through the area where the near the where the thing has been shot down, um, and that's that's or has crashed. Um, but yeah, it, as we I mean, as I said, there's a lot of characters in this thing, um, mm-hmm. and just maybe it was just it was it was lazy, but it just seemed. Like it would be a lot of fun to sort of populate it with carpenter tropes, mm-hmm. you know. Like ultimate to me, like Lukanov was uh, Donald Pleasance in Halloween. Oh, right? yeah, he's, oh, makes he's, sense. He's, he's the one that that knows everything that's going on and has come to warn everybody that you're not prepared. Somewhat crazed you know? too, because I was right. going to say, I think one of the first moments where I'm just like, ooh, I'm going to like the stuff that happens in this movie is also maybe because I just watched uh, Chernobyl, the HBO mm, miniseries. Yeah. So all this stuff with Russia, just like. Um, once the plane crashes and then they're because they're sending Lukanov there to intercept and once it crashes he's just like oh whatever it's America's problem now so they're calling the mission off and he's like no I still have to go over there <laughs> we have to tell him what's happening and his like commanding officer on the plane is just like too bad and Lukanov just shoots him in the head <laughs> right. and basically takes his own <laughs> Russian military plane hostage and he's like no we're still going to America we have to help them yeah, no, it's like it's a it's a really strong, great Russian character you're not used to seeing, you know. <laughs> like, who is it? Who do we have? We had Schwarzenegger and Red Heat and the guy from Ruskies from the eighties. <laughs> you know, yeah. you got this guy. It's like he's like the strongest Russian character. He's a great character. So. Well, it's also fun because of all the characters, and it's also interesting reading this too because it's just like, oh yeah, there's act breaks in here, right, so you huh? get to play though with like mini climaxes and stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I wrote, made a note just the bit I liked is like the coyote we have like approaching uh, like a rabbit. And then later we see this like little girl talking to her mom. She's rummaging through the fridge and she's like, what are you looking for? And she's like, carrots. And it's like, what do you need carrots for? And then we cut to outside and we see the little girl approaching the rabbit and then we don't really <laughs> see what happens. Um, yeah, which is a great thing is that it's start, starting off with the animals, you know, the rabbit, the coyote, eventually the hens. And then yeah. it, till it gets to the humans, I thought that was really, cl- I, I like that a lot, the build. Oh, and they, they, there's only one survivor in the plane crash who's just, like, all burnt up, and we don't really know what's going on with him. He kind of comes back later. And, oh, I made a note to read this just to kind of give a flavor of some of the cool... Oh, this is like it has an act break in here. <laughs> um, just give the audience a flavor of what's going on. So this is a bunch of people at... Uh, where Sarah, the mom of Michael, character we haven't said that much about... But they become important later, but she works at the Atomic Bar and Grill. Um, and let's see here. I'll just kind of read some little, little out of context, but you at least get the fun of what's going on. 
Um, Shiner doesn't say anything. Hard to tell if he's even aware Luis is talking. Luis cracks an egg in the pan. Crack, sizzle. sizzle. He takes another egg from the basket. Crack in the pan. Sizzle. And then another egg. Crack, sizzle. And Luis and this guy are kind of talking. And then he takes a (laughs) a fourth egg and he goes, crack in the pan. And the egg, like, uh, freaks out and reacts, basically. (laughs) It's like the thing in the blood. Um, And some, like, tentacles and tendrils shoot out of that. And I'm like, that's just a good, solid bit with the (laughs) eggs. And realizing, realizing the extent to which the thing is replicating stuff. Right. Because even though we see it in the first one um, with the dog and, the, like, the people he's replacing, it still kind of has that, like, it's like there's one thing at a time feeling. Mm-hmm. And in this right. one, you're really expanding upon more of the pod people quality and that, like, it is just spreading out over this area. Well, that's I mean, that's one of the things that was that you're talking about, the luxury of having two nights was we were able to do that sort of slow build. You were able to see the coyote, you know, go, go into the hen house and see the coyote run away from the hen house and you're like, oh, something happened in, in that hen house and then yeah. play the beat. Now now you've got the opportunity to play with the eggs now that, the, that he's got. When I read that egg scene, I, I lost my mind. I was like, this is so <laughs> yeah. good. Because plus also to go back, it's like you took it from, a, from Antarctica and now you put it in this small desert town which I thought was fantastic, was such a polar opposite, but it works because Antarctica it could freeze there, but here now you, there's still you know a, such a threat to the outside world to keep it within this small town of like 300 people. I said it says so. I, I love from Antarctica to a desert town. I thought that was a really. I mean, was it difficult to figure out where you were going to have it take place? Well, I mean, we knew in order to like get it over two nights to like because like to, to, like you said you want to trade in a lot of those same tropes mm-hmm. it couldn't that plane couldn't crash in manhattan right or near a big city it or it, you know it then. just it's gone like it's crashed mm-hmm. the thing has has won like it win, it wins at the end of act one because it's crashed in the middle of this place where you can't stop it so we knew it had to be someplace um we had a, a, a smaller population something you could, could control something you could do sort of like a, an outbreak movie Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I, I, I'm glad that it, it worked because I feel like the, it was really like the most Mickey Mouse decision I could make, which is like, well, the first one was someplace cold. What if this one's someplace <laughs> hot? Yeah. <laughs> <And> gotcha. so, <laughs> right um, also like too, because as you kind of, things are expanding, uh, you start to also see scenes a little bit more, I don't want to say from the thing's perspective, it never quite goes that far, but like right after this, the egg cracking scene, uh, then we don't see what happens, or we see Louise get kind of fucked up by the thing, but then we cut away, and then uh, Gates, the prisoner guy, I think it's his U.S. Marshal, after they aren't allowed to... Like, he's driving them to a new prison and they can't get through because of the roadblock. Right. So they get sent back to Christmas, New Mexico. Um, and he stops at this diner. And when he knocks on the door, it's like we see Luis's face come up to the window and just kind of looking deadpan and asking weird. And he's, like, asking if he can use the phone and stuff. But then we show inside and it's like... Luis's head is just atop this like weird tentacle that's <laughs> right. connected to this gelatinous blob <laughs> on the floor. I just love that kind of stuff. Me too. Another scene when I read, I was like, I love this scene again. It was, and we're early in the script. <laughs> that, that, that was one of my favorite gags. 
because you really think he's talking to someone. Yeah. And then you just got this, oh, like it's on, oh, it's so good. Well, then as we're cutting back to Little Bear following the coyote, kind of his first big scene, which is introducing an element that then really comes into play at the end of night two. But as the coyote hits an electric fence and right. it just starts freaking out and it's turning back into Ivan Vitsenko, the guy who gotten defibrillated on the plane right uh and then you know ends up getting away and turning back into uh the coyote again um and i can't remember, i don't know if it's this scene i don't know if i mark it down but you also have a great scene at some point sort of replicating the helicopter chasing the dog yeah because mm-hmm. they find out about this coyote so they're just going around and shooting like every single coyote they can see <laughs> from a helicopter um, and I think if they even get the coyote and then we like cut over and there's another coyote watching it and you realize like, oh, that was just a yeah. poor innocent coyote <laughs> that got shot. Um, that, that was something I, we knew early on we wanted to like, because again, like I said, trading in the iconography of that first movie, we we kind of wanted to do like the next level up of the opening scene from the first movie where they're in helicopters and they're shooting at it. You know, we wanted to do, I can't remember if this is, night one or eight night two but at one point there's i think it's night two i'm getting ahead of myself which is is you know it's the coyote in the desert and it's just like apache helicopters launching missiles at it yeah oh it's so good yeah and then and then the one thing coyote is just watching and i i love that about it it's so um well it is interesting because you got all these characters and we're glossing over a lot of that obviously because there's a lot of different little subplots playing out both on kind of the military side and then just the people in this town. Uh, one of my favorite just kind of little mini sequences going on is, so there's uh, Sarah and Michael, it's the mom and the son, and then we find out we've been seeing this guy Rafferty acting really weird, and you think, you know, the coyote had, I think, pr- approached him or maybe the right. rabbit at some point. Yeah. And then we cut back to Michael and Sarah and we realize that Sarah's like dating some guy in town and Michael's not happy about it. And then the guy's coming over for dinner. And then when he arrives, it's Rafferty who we think is the thing. Right. So it's like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, Michael hates this guy, but doesn't realize that he has even more reason to hate him. And there's like a whole part where Michael's like mouthing off at dinner and gets sent to his room and Rafferty like goes up there and is just kind of like standing outside his door like trying to get in and eventually just like walks away and this all building up this very unexpected insane moment where Michael goes back down and is like spying on his mom and Rafferty talking and Rafferty's basically like I got a present for you and I'll just read this part Mm. uh as it close your eyes, she does. Rafferty looks down at her. Michael anx- anxiously watches. At last, Rafferty takes her hand, drops to one knee, and slips a ring on her finger. She gasps and opens her eyes to look at it. It's a simple ring with a modest stone, but Sarah doesn't seem to mind. She gives Rafferty a happy smile. Uh, his voice trembles. Sarah Ann, will you marry me? A beat. Suddenly, the skin of Sarah's ring finger peels back and a barbed tendril shoots out, stabbing him in the chest. Rafferty gasps in pain and surprise. Michael's eyes go wide and his mouth opens in silent scream. More tendrils come whipping out of Sarah, plunging into Rafferty like he was a telephone switchboard. Sarah glares at him, her eyes bulging until they pop out of their sockets, rising on weird snail-like stalks. Her jaws 
jaw drops open until it hangs down to her chest, and then she basically swallows him like a boa <laughs> constrictor. And I was like, oh, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I, I didn't either, and that's, that's something, again, there's so many scenes in the script that I was so caught by surprise, and like I rarely ever do this, but I was like, like out loud saying stuff or jolting in my seat when I was reading this, because oh, that one great. totally took me by surprise. And the way you explain the thing transformations is great. One thing you keep going back to is you call it like a flesh flower. And right. I just love that because <laughs> I can, I totally see it in my head, a flesh flower and then tendrils popping out. Oh, well, it was such a iconic piece of those Botine mm-hmm. creations, you know, the way that we just, they would just sort of sickly peel open and the mucus everywhere as they, as they, as they fall apart like petals, you yeah. know, it, it, it's, there's so much fun to be had with that. And there was like nothing else like that at the time, and pretty much still to this day, nothing else like it. And no, I mean, I, I think, I mean, one of the fun things, like obviously we would have had to do some CGI work to accomplish some of this stuff, but one of the things that Frank was excited about, it was he'd taken it to his pal Greg Nicotero, and we wish like, how can we do all this practically? How can we do, you know, <sighs> that sort of Rob Bottin, make this stuff real? You know, and so it, all, all, that was that was the idea behind sort of like fetishizing all these transformations because that was one of the great things about that first movie. Absolutely, that would have been amazing having practical and Nicotero on this. Wow, yeah. ah, hurts more. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, and then so then on like the government side with Lukanov, then we kind of start getting getting more into the explanation of like what the thing is. Uh, and we really break it down. I mean, I think this is still kind of taken from the first movie, but the idea that every single cell of it is alive, and that's why right. it's so dangerous. Is you just like basically one particle of this gets out, and the world is still doomed. Um, and kind of even the idea that all the stuff they ended up doing at the end of the first thing, it's just like, even mm-hmm. if no one had gone down there for a million years, once plate tectonics moved around right. and Antarctica <laughs> thought out, then whoever was living then would be screwed. Right. Um, and we kind of bring back the blood test, which won't get into it now, but then comes, evolves even further in night two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Lukanov's, you know, giving the blood test to everybody. Uh, there's a fun part where um, we, we're playing McCready's recordings that we hear him making right. in the thing, uh, just kind of letting the world know what's going on. Because the Russians had had this thing and they'd been trying to weaponize it, wondering if they could control it or give it orders. And obviously nothing ever worked. And we see in flashbacks that Lukanov and his wife, who we'd met in like the cold open when they discover uh, the Americans camp in Antarctica, um, it was kind of a cool sequence where he basically has to kill his own wife just because her suit gets punctured right. while she's in the containment cell as far as really getting the stakes up there of how just, again, just one particle and you're doomed. Like right. there's no, and there's no coming back. You can't reason with it. Um, and night one ends with like the big episode ending cliffhanger is Lukanov, who'd been with kind of the Americans, and they finally are getting to Christmas, New Mexico, and they get there, and there's basically just like nothing left. Right. Uh, and he says, "We're too late." Dun dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> um, and with that, we will end night one of this podcast and return with you for night two. I don't need to say thank you or goodbye just yet because <laughs> uh, we'll rejoin you shortly. Um, 
But I guess we'll just say it now because these will air like two weeks apart. Where can okay. people find you on social media if uh, you oh. like people to find you on uh, social media? On Twitter, I'm at Brave Carrot. Um, hmm. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and I now realize we haven't even really properly introduced you because I wanted to save some of this career discussion for part two, forgetting again that it's going to be weeks apart from now. But uh, your first kind of big success was the movie Orphan. Yes. And then kind of shortly after that, you sort of wound up in the James Wan universe. Right. Working on the Conjuring sequels. You wrote Aquaman. I'm assuming Aquaman 2 is coming. Working on that now, yeah. Conjuring 3. They just wrapped on that, yeah. And you wrote uh, Wrath of the Titans, he wrote. So I'm a big fan yes. of it. <laughs> are there any Conjuring spin-offs you are working on? Are you kind of just no. part of Conjuring proper? Uh, right now, Conjuring proper. Um, but you know, I mean, there, there. There's no Annabelle there's versus n- the Nun coming. <laughs> not, not to my knowledge. <laughs> I mean, it seems inevitable, but yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, and Steve and I can both be found on social media, Best Movies Never Made. You should follow us, follow us on Instagram where we post a lot of pictures. Uh, hopefully we'll find some artwork from The Return of the Thing that we can post. You can also find us on Twitter at NeverMadeFilm. Um, and you should also check out Electric Surge's other podcasts, like the 430 Movie every Friday, in which a group of writers and producers curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies and Inglorious Trexperts, a podcast for Star Trek fans with a life. Available every Saturday wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, a very special thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone here at Electric Sur- Surge Network. Woof! A lot of talking. My mouth's getting tired. Including, <laughs> thanks to Electric Surge Network, including our producers, Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman. And until next time, this is... Steven Scarlatta. And I'm Josh Miller saying, we won't see you at the movies. You're listening to the Electric Surge Network.